Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 150 some large digit. Yeah, 56. 56, One, 156. see? Uh, not, I, I was thinking it was higher than that, but 156. It's definitely... Unless I failed yes. to increase it, it is. It's 156. It's 156. Wow, it course. is 2023 and we are off to a roaring start. What Man. number is it again? 156. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Well, here we are. Here we are. Uh, today we are going to talk a bit about... Can we even say the word at this point, or is it still Voldemort? Uh, no, I believe we can say the word. We, we can say the word? Uh, I think if we pronounce it in British, then uh, we're safe. So today we might be talking about ivermectin. That wasn't British. No, I don't know what that was. What, what, I, don't, I was going to say uh, ivermectin, which I don't think is how the oh, Brits pronounce it. But oh, just... It's plausible. As long as there are no Brits watching, I think it'll do. Okay. I thought you meant an accent as opposed to a different pronunciation. <laughs> but I can't... Like, it doesn't have enough... I don't even know. Can we start over? <laughs> Ivermectin? <laughs> this is going to be the thing that finally cancels us. Yes. Yes. Finally. Yeah. To Yanks. many people's great relief and others' oh. tremendous horror. Uh, that was the wrong two. I thought you were going to say two Yanks finally pushed Two it. Yanks <laughs> finally pushed it too far. a bit too far. Indeed. Okay, so we're going to talk about Ivermectin a little bit, and then um, some organizations that seem to have lost the plot. The Red Cross... The American Museum of Natural History, uh, a biological organization uh, for which you ended up at the conference of this yes, week. Yes, I did. Somehow. I went uh, to a biology conference. Yeah, you didn't actually go to a biology, biology conference. You went to Austin to talk to... To Joe Rogan, of the course. The awesome Joe Rogan. The awesome Joe Rogan. But, but I did go to a biology and conference. And the hotel you're at happened to be hosting a biology conference. I so. crashed a biology conference. Yes, you did. Yes. Yes, you did. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And we're also going to talk about fourth grade me trying not to lose the plot mm. at the end. All right. And you well, don't know I what have that is, no but. idea where that's going. No, but. no. Okay, but first some logistics. Uh Find and follow Dark Horse now on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we now have accounts there, and we've got some some awesome people uh, monitoring those accounts and putting up content. And um, there will be announcements of things like schedule changes and um, and blast from the past and blasphemy from the past, even probably. Yeah. 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 Almost undoubtedly. Yeah. Uh, we follow these live streams with live Q and As. Q's and A's? Q's and A's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, we uh, also are streaming on Odyssey. Is that correct, Mr. Producer Man? Okay. Uh, we, are produce- uh, we are producing. We are streaming on Odyssey, and that is where the chat is live. If you are watching us live, you can go over there. And... Um, we encourage you to check out our book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, my Substack, naturalselections.substack.com, where uh, this week I wrote about connecting and my desire to befriend seals, mm. among other things. Approving seals. I guess I need them to be approving if I am to befriend them, yes. Of course, I will let everyone fill in their own punchline on that. Yes, indeed. Uh, we have a terrific store, uh, darkhorsestore.org, with lots of awesome products, including the lie, lie to a Tyrant hoodie, which we got a couple in the mail, and I presented it to our younger, awesome 16-year-old son, and he wore it to school. He did. Yeah. As and long as he doesn't take us to be tyrants, I think it's good. No, he, uh, he, he looked at it. He's like, Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> lie to Stalin. Mm, got it. Absolutely. <clears throat> okay. 
Uh, and we are, of course, supported by you, our audience. We appreciate you subscribing to the channels, uh, both YouTube and Odyssey and the Clips channel, Dark Horse Podcast Clips on both of those, and wherever it is that you are watching or listening to the podcast, be it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever, and sharing, uh, liking, you know, subscribing, liking, and sharing when you, when you feel like uh, you should be doing so. Uh, YouTube, of course, demonetized us a long time ago at this point. And uh, as such, we appreciate any financial support you can uh, you can throw at us. We have uh, Patreons where there are active communities, and you also can get access to a private monthly Q and A on mine. And Brett has conversations on his one of which was this morning. The yep. second of which this month will be tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, nine a.m. Pacific. Uh, and they are um, fantastic. You can also there get access to our Discord server well, where conversations are ongoing and include things like karaoke and, um, and book clubs. And of course, we have sponsors for whom we are very, very grateful. And uh, we do not accept sponsorship from, uh, from corporations that make products or offer services that we actually don't uh, vouch for. So you can be sure that if we are reading ads, as we do at the top of each live stream, three ads, uh, then we have actually vetted and, uh, and approved these products. So without further ado, our current sponsors, our first sponsors for 2023 include the House of Macadamias. This is, they're brand new to us. Nuts. That's right. House of Macadamias makes, makes. They grow and they package and they put into some remarkable forms macadamia nuts. Tree nuts, which includes not just macadamias, but also pecans, walnuts, cashews, almonds, pistachios, and more, are delicious and nutritious. They are generally high in fat and low in carbohydrates, which is increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you, despite what the food pyramid may have told you. Also, yum. Uh, that's the delicious part. Oh, yes. right. Oh, yeah. it was included there yeah. in highfalutin language. Delicious. and Yeah, that's super highfalutin. It's delicious. semi-highfalutin. <laughs> it's moderately falutin. It's it's moderately falutin. Yeah. As are macadamias. No. No, they're, I don't know, high and awesome. <laughs> high and awesome falutin, yes. But each species of nut is different. And for many of us, and for good reason, macadamias are the best. Macadamia nuts take a very long time to grow, however, and are rare, representing only about 1% of nuts in the marketplace. And because they are both rare and highly sought after, they have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. But between the taste and the health benefits, they're worth it. They have fewer carbohydrates than most other nuts, for instance, half of what cashews or pistachios have, and two-thirds of what almonds have, which makes them the perfect snack for breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitoleic, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, palmitoleic acid, an unsaturated fat that has been linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. And I will say here, just an aside, I actually went and looked at, um, I did a little lit literature review on macadamia nuts, and... Uh, and what, what people are finding out about them. And it is a burgeoning field of research because macadamia nuts really do seem to be um, quite remarkable in many ways, quite good for you. And House of Macadamias, which is our newest sponsor, is a company obsessed with making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They have partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan, keto, and paleo snacks. These include their white chocolate-dipped macadamias and dark chocolate-dipped macadamias, plus a delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts, including mocha, salted caramel, and chocolate coconut. They're all great. And they have simply delicious salted macadamias made with Namibian sea salt. They're amazing. We love them, and we think that you will too. So our House of Academias recommends House of Macadamias. For all of your macadamic needs, looking for something to nourish and energize you while in pursuit of the truth or the next summit, 
go to www.houseofmacadamias.com. That's house of M-A-C-A-D-A-M-I-A-S.com and use code DARKHORSE for a 20% discount on your first order. All right. And with that, we go to our second sponsor. And our second sponsor is Eight Sleep. And I must tell you, while I was on the road, I missed the ability to control the temperature of the bed just so. You weren't able to turn your bed into an ice cube. No, I had to use the, the, the room temperature, which is just not a good substitute. Yeah. It's just not as effective. No, Eight Sleep is fabulous. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. All right. So good sleep is a game changer. And the Eight Sleep... Uh, pod helps you get good sleep. As we discuss in the sleep chapter of the Hunter-Gatherer's Guide, intelligent life that found its way to Earth might be surprised by a lot of what it found on our planet, but likely not by the fact of sleep or dreams. Sleep is necessary. Without good sleep, we are destined to be unhealthy and unproductive. Consistent good sleep can help you reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, decrease the risk of heart disease, lower blood pressure, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. But more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Couples who sleep together often have different optimal sleep temperatures, Heather. Yes, they do. Which can cause all sorts of disagreements. Also, Heather, eight sleep allows fine-tuned temperature regulation for both people. Having a cool room and a warm bed is a luxury that eight sleep makes easy to obtain. (laughs) Not that you want that. No. Um... (laughs) The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the only sleep technology with dyna- that dynamically cools and heats each side of the bed to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. With the Pod, you can start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit, so nice, or as hot as 110, yikes. Um, not that we recommend the extremes, though. Some of us recommend close to one of those extremes. Close to one of those extremes, but it's good. My God, that's it good. goes down to negative ten units, and that's not temperature units. And you started off at negative eight. My God, it's so cold. Delightful, but all right. Um, <laughs> but you can do this and not antagonize your partner, and that's amazing. And not antagonize your partner, right? Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your uh, your sleep stages, biometrics, bedroom temperature, reacting dynamically to create the optimal sleeping environment. Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get 30% more deep sleep on average. With more restful sleep overall, you may see improvements in physical recovery, hormone regulation, and mental clarity. Finally, the alarm feature, which I used only this morning, uh, which can wake you with temperature change and or slight chest level vibrations, is so much gentler than any standard alarm. We were both a little skeptical, and now we are totally sold. We are surprised by how much we appreciate this bed. Go to 8sleep.com slash darkhorse to check out the Pod Pro cover and save 150 bucks at checkout. 8sleep currently ships within the USA, Canada, and the UK, and select countries in the EU and Australia. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I do not know why, but my phone... It doesn't matter what I set the alarm to. It wakes up with that same blaring thing. I can't adjust. What you're not the... talking about the 8sleep app. You're talking right. about your phone. And yeah, so anyway, I was shocking. dreading it. I had yeah. to get up early this morning, mm-hmm. and um, I realized, oh, I've got the perfect solution right here. So yeah. I did not use the phone at all. No, and, and it just, the bed, your side of the bed just vibrated lightly, and mm-hmm. you wake up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like earthquake? Nice. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, just like with the temperature, you can set it to vibrate not at all up through... 10 level. I haven't tried that. I don't know yeah, what that Yeah, it's really not like. necessary. I mean, yeah. one five or two is does. plenty and it's not like jarring. Two is fine. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, our final sponsor this week is Seed. 
Seed is a company focused on bacteria and the microbiome, and they have a terrific probiotic called DS01 Daily Symbiotic. I always prefer eating real food to taking pills, but I have to say I really love this product. There are a lot of things that you can do to enhance your health. Our sign-off here at Dark Horse includes three of them. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. But a lot is hidden in those words. What, for instance, constitutes, constitutes good food? Good food is real food, whole food, food that has been alive recently and was grown with care and conditions as ancient as possible given the constraints of the 21st century. But even many people who eat such a diet are missing something. We contain multitudes. Every individual human contains so many other organisms, some of which may harm us, but many of which exist with us in harmony. We need them. This is why probiotics can be an important tool in a healthy lifestyle, even if you eat nutrient-dense food and avoid processed foods and sugar. But not all probiotics are created equally. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic. It contains 24 distinct probiotic strains in a two-in-one capsule that protects the probiotics until they hit the colon, where they are most effective. If you've taken a probiotic before and never felt a difference, it's likely because the good bacteria weren't surviving your GI tract. Seed is designed differently, and that's why it works. Seed's daily symbiotic supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. We've heard from several people who've used seed and report improvements to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com, S-E-E-D, slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse at checkout. All right. That... Is it? That's the business for the sponsorships. That's yep. for the for the business. And um, we were going to start off today talking about the mechanism of action of ivermectin. What mechanism of action of ivermectin? I remember, I remember a particularly nasty interaction where one of our detractors took me to task for mm. admitting that I did not know by what mechanism ivermectin seemed to be working. And she said, "And if very, you don't know, it must not work." Right? Exactly. How can you say that something works without if you don't know the mechanism of action? And of course, that's not how science works at all. You can absolutely yeah. know that something works and not know the mechanism of action. But it and appears, frankly, such a mechanistic approach to science is almost always hand in hand with a reductionist approach and almost always revealing of a relatively small mind who may generate sort of bricks in the wall that already exist in science, but is very unlikely to discover new truths. That is 100% not the way that science has to work. There is good mechanistic science out there, as I think this paper we're going to talk about today reveals. But the idea that if you don't know mechanism, you can't know the thing is functional, no. Right. And any fool knows this, right? I mean, how many how many how many games of ultimate frisbee have taken place entirely on a field with nobody on it who could explain what the relationship is between the Bernoulli effect and the way the damn thing flies, right? No, you just know how to throw the frisbee, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, knowing how it works is not essential, but it's fantastic when it happens because it allows you to go that much farther. You can extrapolate in ways that you could not necessarily otherwise extrapolate. So anyway, it's great that a mechanism of action seems to have emerged. Indeed. So um, we ran across this on um, Dr. McCullough's substack. He published a short piece called Ivermectin's Mechanism of Action Against SARS-CoV-2 Described Shame on the Hospital Symptoms Shame on the Hospital Systems that Systematically Denied Patients and Their Begging Families This FDA-Approved Nobel Prize-Winning Wonder Drug. He is um, talking about, he is referring to this paper uh, that came out in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences, which you can show my screen if you like, Zach. Um, Just... Recently, it's actually end of 2022. 
and the title is SARS-CoV-2 Spike Protein Induces Hemagglutination, Implications for COVID-19 Morbidities and Therapeutics and for Vaccine Adverse Effects. Okay. Uh, I think we had talked about me just sharing a couple of excerpts from the paper before we talk about it. Or yes. You, well, or... there was one other thing that was, I don't remember if it's in the paper. It was certainly in McCullough's brief treatment of it, which I wanted to remind people of okay. because there's been so much effort put into confusing people about ivermectin and uh, whether or not it works for SARS-CoV-2 that I just wanted to um, to highlight this uh, this piece of information, which is that ivermectin was known to have broad-scale effects against RNA viruses generally. There is a large number of RNA viruses in which it has been shown to be useful. So to the extent that people are scratching their heads over why a dewormer has an effect on uh, SARS-CoV-2, that's not what it is. This is a highly bioactive molecule that has effects, yes, on parasitic worms, also appears to have effects counteracting RNA viruses, of which SARS-CoV-2 is, of course, one. Yep. So not uh, a that... lot of them, and we and we wrote that into the piece that we published on my Substack as well. Yep. And you know, it it, it is you know, it is a kind of a wonder drug, and there's a reason that it was on the Who's list of essential medicines, and that's not Roger Daltrey's doing. That's the other Who, and that's the Who that has <laughs> since like you know taken out. Where did Roger Daltrey come from? <laughs> well, you know, in, until 2020, when you said the Who, most the who. people who weren't associated with the World Health Organization or in that sphere somehow would think you know Peter Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey and such. But you know, this isn't this isn't a sleight of hand on our part. Going like, yeah, some you know rock stars think that ivermectin works like no the who it's still on their list of essential medicines and um i believe it's back on uh, a number of other health agencies list of recommended medicines for covid too but i did not look into that for, for it this. is actually i checked before the podcast i have to delve deeper to see exactly what it means but it is actually on the nih site um, so it was on the NIH. So be careful there, because it was on the NIH site for a while, and but they basically said, yeah, but not really. Yeah. Like, so I don't. I don't yeah, know if something's changed. Yeah, but for research or something like yeah. that. But yeah. anyway, it's it's uh, it's beside the point. I will point out that in terms of yes, you can know that something works before you know how it is that it works. That there is also something to be said for the integrative aspect of this. Right, You have a bacterium found in Japanese soil. I believe a golf course is the original source. No, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, but in any case... That makes it weirder in a way. It does make it weirder. Yeah, so selective effects from the stuff you have to put on grass to make it into a golf course. Either that or it's very tolerant and uh, Satoshi Omura was at the golf course because it's a place that brings people. I don't know exactly what the explanation would be. But the thing that I would point out is there's bound to be a fascinating ecological story underlying the question of why this bacterium has effects against a broad range of creatures. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you studied the bacterium instead of studying the compound, you might find that it has a unique environment in which fending off these things uh, is particularly relevant to some story I think that we don't yet know. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear that story. Yeah. How is it that some uh, creature as inconspicuous as this one came to have all of these effects that we find so useful? Right. And uh, without understanding why or even what yet what many of the effects were, 
the discovery by Umara uh, won him a Nobel Prize back in 2015. 2015. So not that long ago, actually, even though the discovery was many decades before. That is as often the case with the. I mean, maybe always the case with the Nobel, right? Yep. At least in physiology and medicine, um, that the award gets granted um, often decades after the discovery in question. Decades I think it, all, after all of the sciences, maybe peace, not so much, and maybe literature, not so much. Although literature tends to be across a, for a lifetime. Anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, yeah. Neither here nor there. Um, okay, so this article. Uh, published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences, finds that, and you may show my screen if you like, Zach, this is just the second half of the abstract. The results of these experiments were, first, that spike protein from these four lineages of SARS-CoV-2-induced HA, which is um, hemagglutination assay. I want to say that has to be assay, although the way they've got this, um, that's weird. Um, Omicron-induced HA at a significantly lower threshold concentration of spike protein than the three prior lineages and was much more electropositive on its central spike protein region. IVM, that's ivermectin, blocked HA when added to red blood cells prior to spike protein and reversed hemagglutination when added afterwards. These results validate and extend prior findings on the role of glycan bindings of viral spike protein in COVID-19. They furthermore suggest therapeutic options using competitive glycan binding agents such as ivermectin and may help elucidate rare serious adverse effects associated with COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, which use spike protein as the generated antigen. So that's highly technical as abstracts will tend to be, uh, but it, it clears up a little bit with a few more, uh, a few more sections. Um, and for those, glycan is just a polysaccharide. So hemagglutinating property basically just means clumping. Okay, um, So this uh, clumping of red blood cells. This hemagglutinating property of SARS-CoV-2 has important clinical consequences. First, with trillions of red blood cells each circulating through narrow pulmonary capillaries about once per minute, even small dynamically aggregating and disaggregating red blood cell clumps, as can form even in the absence of pathogens, can impede red blood cell oxygenation. Peripheral ischemia, endothelial damage, and vascular occlusion are indeed frequently observed in serious cases of COVID-19, as reviewed in these references. In COVID-19 patients, damaged endothelium of pulmonary capillaries is often observed adjoining relatively intact alveoli, while hypoxemia is manifested despite normal breathing mechanism, me mechanics. These morbidities of COVID-19 parallel those of severe malaria, in which clumping of parasite-infected red blood cells to other red blood cells via SA, I don't remember what that is, terminal residues and endothelial cytoadhesion also often result in fatal outcomes. So they are saying this looks similar to malaria. We now are seeing what SARS-CoV-2 is doing, which is it's causing red blood cells to clump, uh, the, the word being hemagglutination. And, uh, and we, the authors of this paper, um, are putting together that, that thing that we are seeing with the observation, the clinical observations of how it is that people suffering from bad cases of COVID um, are manifesting in terms of their symptoms. So um, I don't know if you want to continue there or I want to add a couple of things. So to translate some of that, um, it is counterintuitive that capillary beds are actually basically composed of uh, of uh, arterioles that are so tiny that basically the blood cells go through close to single file and any clumping causes 
these things not to be able to get through. And what they're saying is that that results in damage from these tissues not being perfused with oxygen. And any tissue that is denied oxygen long enough basically ends up dying, which they're saying matches some of the pathologies that we see from a severe COVID infection. And they also say that the lungs are failing to engage in gas exchange, even though the mechanics are working. And the basic point is, in order for gas exchange to work, the blood has to get right to this very cusp of contact with the air that you're breathing in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to the extent that the capillary beds in your alveoli are not perfused with blood cells because the blood cells can't get in single file to get into those tiny little arterioles, it's not working. So they're not presumably dumping uh, carbon dioxide and picking up oxygen, which then results in the um, the hypoxia that was talked about so much earlier in the COVID pandemic. Yeah, uh, uh, just just a semantic point. Yep. Um, so, you know, the, the heart, as mammals, we have a fully four chambered heart in which uh, you know we have blood coming out of the heart and going to systemically coming back in and then going to the other side of the heart and going out into the lum lungs, the lungs. <laughs> The lungs and then back. And in both of those circuits, be it out to the body uh, and then back or out to the lungs and then back, you basically go go out on the biggest, biggest, most muscularized vessels, the arteries. And then as they get smaller, there's no real category difference, but like then they become arterioles. And then at the point that they are at their most, at their smallest, where the blood cells may in fact be going single file, we call those capillary beds. We don't really call them arterioles, at least over in comparative biology land, where I'm, you know, never dissected a human, but dissected a lot of cats. Um, and then, you know, as they come out of the capillary beds, like uh, venules, I think, venules, and then yeah. veins, um, as they get bigger, you know, and veins are um, are under much less pressure, and so the sides of them are are much less thick, and they tend to, you know, you end up with these um, sort of pools. Um, pools in your veins potentially if you aren't otherwise very healthy or if you're old in a way that you don't really get pools in your in your arteries uh, because the blood coming directly out of your heart before it hits capillaries is under fairly high pressure but after having gone through the capillary beds it's coming back more sluggishly and also um, deoxygenated and the thing about the alveoli of the lungs is that basically the lung the, the lungs the, the the pulmonary circuit out of the heart uh, is is a way to get the blood back into oxygenated state, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, the pulmonary artery is the least oxygenated uh, vessel in the body, um, or the least oxygenated big vessel in the body, even though in general, when we think of arteries, it's like, oh, you know, the blood is pumping fast, it's full of oxygen, but only if it's recently come back from the lungs and it's now going out into the body. Right. And so... Um... So I did screw up. I used arterial where oh, I should yeah. have said capillary. But in any case, um, it's amazing how well this actually fits a lot of the stuff that was discussed early in COVID. The hypoxia yes. Yes. is basically, if you imagine that what you did, you know, even if your red blood cells are just uh, a little bit tending to stick together, that's enough to keep them from flowing through those capillary beds the way they're supposed to. And so yep. you can imagine they put that pulse ox thing on your finger. And basically what it's reading is that to the extent that oxygenated blood landed in your tissues like the ones in your fingers yeah. it burned its oxygen and then wasn't in a position to go back and play another round of the game um and so you would see this now what i don't hear explained in here is why the you, you will remember that it, the uh, syndrome was called something like happy hypoxics mm. that you had people who had such mm -hmm. low oxygenation that they should have been on the floor and yet they didn't even register 
to themselves that they were struggling to to oxygenate. Yeah, so I, right. I'm looking for I'm, I'm waiting for that explanation. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so far interesting. Yeah. So a few more uh, a few more bits from this paper. Uh, this is just something that we've talked about before, but ivermectin achieved Nobel Prize honored distinction for success against global parasitic scourges, but is of disputed efficacy in the treatment of COVID-19, as indicated, for example, by the disparity in the conclusions of this editorial cited and its key cited meta-analysis cited. So this is just, so these authors, like all the authors trying to publish, all the scientists trying to publish on COVID right now who are in any way dissidents from the mainstream narrative, uh, have to have to do a little bit of this, like, oh, but the vaccines are great. Oh, but, you know, things don't work when we've been told they don't work, even if they really kind of do. And so there's always a little, you know, there's, there's ways that you can get in the critique, and this is them doing that. The conclusions of the editorial that they cite um, are, are, you know, we need to stop using drugs that don't work. And then the meta-analysis, and that includes ivermectin, and then the meta-analysis that that editorial cites finds that it does work. So, um, you know, even even the even the medical journals that are supposed to be that that seem to be doing the right thing are um, are are just are citing things backwards throughout throughout. Well, the you pandemic. can. I guess what you're saying is you can detect the uh, the massive force that wants to tell you what you can and cannot say, even in a paper that's reporting something here that's clearly a vindication of those who have been mm -hmm. demonized. But even this is here. but no but no this is them going like, yeah, look, look at what at the these disparity guys did. between yeah. the yeah. Yeah. And but you have to you have to I'm not gonna do it here, but you're like you have I did before we came on camera. You have to go and look it's like, oh, okay. So this is them revealing something that to the casual reader won't be revealed, but it's but it's in here. Okay, so um, sorry about the scrolling. Where's the next thing? Uh, HA, hemagglutinating. Okay, so that's just the, the, the tendency of the red blood cells to stick together. The hemagglutinating inducing activity of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which is especially potent for Omicron, raises questions as to potential risks for COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, which use spike protein as the generated antigen even though serious adverse effects linked to spike protein, such as myocarditis, are rare. Detectable levels of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and S1 in serum or plasma have been found to persist for as long as 50 days following such vaccinations. The possibility that spike protein migrating into the bloodstream could in rare cases prompt such hemoagglutinating-associated adverse events is suggested, for example, by a study of 1,006 subjects experiencing adverse events after receiving a Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna mRNA vaccination, which found a significant degree of red blood cell aggregation in the blood of 948 of those subjects, 948 of 1,006. These risks may be increased for younger age groups, with 301 adolescents of 13 to 18 years of age who received two doses of the BioNTech mRNA COVID-19 vaccine in one study having a 29.2% rate of cardiac adverse events, ranging from tachycardia or palpitation to myopericarditis. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So what they're saying, and I should say there's a, a piece of conservatism in here that doesn't uh, that sure. needs to be highlighted, yep. which is that, yes, the spike protein has been found up to 50 days, but it's actually been found longer than that, and we really don't know at what rate it dissipates. I remember, I, uh, I know you're going somewhere, persists for as long as 50 days following such vaccinations. 
I did not click through on these links, but I remember us talking in an earlier Dark Horse about some of the research that was finding that it was persisting. And the research was saying, you know, up to up to 50 days or something like that. And when you go into the paper, it actually says, well, we actually just stopped looking after 50 days. So it's not that they are saying, and then it's gone. They're saying, and then we don't know, right. which is an important distinction. I don't know that I don't know that's the case here, but it may well be. Um, it is also the case that people should remember the spike protein is not supposed to be free-floating after these vaccines anyway, yeah. right? It's supposed to be sticking in the membrane of the cells that have been transfected, and those cells are not supposed to be anywhere and everywhere in the body. They're mm -hmm. supposed to be limited to the deltoid and the lymphatic system associated with it, uh, where the antigen-presenting cells were supposed to pass it off to the uh, the uh, immunological cells, the Bs and T cells that learn the formula. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so the, the point is we're talking about design failure after design failure. The choice of spike protein, it's self-dangerous. Why? Well, we now know at least one reason why, which is that it cause, causes it's, this It's hemoagglutinating inducing. It's <laughs> right. Um, and so choice of the spike protein, the fact the spike protein is showing up independent of the cells that, did, that were transfected, uh, all of these things are suggesting a kind of uh, blood disorder that is uh, mimicking malaria. Um, and well, there's a whole other story that we could get into. But, um, but nonetheless, the idea that this is creating this overall malfunction of the red blood cell half of the system uh, is, is profoundly disturbing. Yeah. And... Um, the mechanism of action, therefore, uh, I don't know if you had a piece you wanted to read or if we should just describe it in plain English. Of ivermectin? Yeah. We'll do this first, then we'll translate into plain English. Good. Ivermectin, a macrocyclic, a macrocyclic lactone indicated to bind strongly to multiple glycan sites on SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Blocked hemagglutination when added to red blood cells prior to spike protein and reversed hemagglutination when added afterwards which suggests therapeutic options for COVID-19 treatment using this drug or other competitive glycan binding agents. So um, that's, that's not, you know, that's in a dish, right? Uh, but uh, ivermectin blocks hemagglutination before exposure, and it reverses hemagglutination after exposure to the spike protein in a dish, in a Petri dish, uh, suggesting that given that we now know that uh, one of, if not the primary mechanism of action by which SARS-CoV-2 is doing damage to people is hemagglutination. And we know separately that IVM, that ivermectin, and it's not the only one that does it, but that ivermectin is both incredibly safe and, oops, effective <laughs> in blocking or, prevent, blocking or reversing hemagglutination. Hey, it works against COVID. Yeah, it works against COVID also potentially works against uh, vaccine adverse events that are caused by spike protein. Um, yep. I will say it is, if this paper holds, it is a validation of one of the hypotheses that we explored early on, that the mechanism of action of ivermectin might be the binding of spike protein, that that might be why it has general applicability. Um, and there's one other thing I yeah, want to... I don't think it's... But that's not that's not what's going on here. It's not binding the spike protein. Well, what, uh, the question is, it is so you will 
Also recall that with Dr. Malone on the episode that I did with him and Steve Kirsch, mm -hmm. we talked about the fact that the spike protein is covered in these sugars. Yeah. Right? Mm. It's covered in these sugars, presumably yep. as effectively a cloaking mechanism, right? So if it is pulling these sugars out of the blood and therefore being encrusted in something that doesn't trigger the immune system, that allows it to evade the surveillance that happens there. And so anyway, it's interesting how this result seems to line up with some of the speculating that we did about why things functioned the way they did early on in the pandemic before this stuff was known. So it's kind of kind of cool. It's it's very cool. And, uh, you know, it's not misinformation. It's not disinformation, but it's probably still malinformation. Because it's true and it makes you distrust your government. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what we can do about that. Really? I mean, I, better government, I think. Better. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You said a mouthful. Right. Yeah. So, so if we had trustworthy government, mm -hmm. then we could at least be emotionally disturbed at things that made you distrust it. But with a distrustful government, it's hard to know if you're just distrusting it because it sucks. Right. Yeah. You can't know if you're paranoid if they're actually after you. Exactly. It's very hard to diagnose paranoia <laughs> when they're out to get you. Um, no. Yeah. Um, Yes. All right. All right. So there. Um, yeah. I mean, let's just say this. This is this is exciting for more than one reason. A. Yeah. It's beginning to fill in a piece of the puzzle. B. It's operationalizable. Yeah. Right. To, to the extent that people which is cool. Mechanism is cool. We don't need it often, but it's cool when you got it. But it's cool. It's cool yeah. when you got it. And I actually, I remember. I don't think Pierre said this on the podcast, but he certainly said it to me and maybe us privately. That as he was discovering that ivermectin was not only uh, a great preventative for COVID, a great treatment for COVID, but it also worked uh, for long COVID and, and uh, adverse events, he was like, this kind of sucks because I feel like a one-trick pony. <laughs> I keep pointing people to this stuff, but it works. Right. And anyway, this begins to explain why it is that it's just sort of generally useful in this mm -hmm. because spike protein is such a large part of the pathology associated with both the disease and the, the so-called vaccines. Well, and I think I, I read it, but I glossed over it because it was a highly technical paragraph. But um, you know, they also say the hemagglutinating property of SARS-CoV-2 is much reduced in Omicron. And so quite separately, and I don't know, I don't know if he said it publicly, but to us, Dr. Corey, when we got Omicron a year ago, um, he said, yeah, you could take the ivermectin, but it seems to be not as effective uh, with, with Omicron. And that is also consistent with this finding that Omicron has a lower hemagglutinating tendency, uh, tendency yeah. than the other uh, strains. Isn't it crazy when all of the lines of evidence line up? Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Okay, should we talk about the red? Since we're talking about blood, let's talk about the Red Cross. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, hi. And, and Fairfax, who loves to talk about the yes, Red Cross. Yes, it's our semi-domesticated animal. Indeed. Uh, okay. Where do I even start here? The Red Cross. Sorry, I got to um, figure out what I'm doing here. Okay. Um... I will link to the page, but I'm just going to show you a series of screenshots. Um, yeah, with with regard to things that are coming up on the Red Cross site at the moment. Um, 
they have LGBTQ plus donors. This page is supported by the American Red Cross LGBTQ plus team member resource group. Learn about federal regulations related to blood donation by lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, and gender nonconforming individuals. American Red Cross values. Uh, if anyone watching doesn't know what the American Red Cross is, which I find dubious, uh, there are a lot of things. But in the United States, anyway, the primary way that Americans end up running into them is with blood drives. Uh, they are, I think, by far the largest uh, collector of blood, often encouraging people to donate blood. Uh, and actually just, yeah, now you can leave my screen up, uh, and, uh, and therefore distributor of blood. And of course, back in the 80s, uh, when uh, I, I think most of these most of these sort of corrections to who could donate when were happening in the eighties with the AIDS pandemic, pandemic epidemic epidemic maybe I don't know when AIDS came on the scene and had everyone terrified and then you know in short order people were beginning to get sort of a handle on well who's really at risk. Uh, there were of course restrictions put in place in terms of who could donate blood. And one of those restrictions was men who have sex with men, which we'll see this here in a minute, MSM is the acronym, not an acronym, the abbreviation they're using. Men who have sex with men uh, and have had sex with men within the last three months are not allowed to donate, are on a, a temporary hold. And if you are a man who has sex with men but hasn't had sex with any men in the previous three months, then you're allowed to donate. Uh, because because uh, many sexually uh, transmitted uh, diseases um, stay in the blood and um, are particularly suited to transmission uh, through uh, male homosexual sex. Okay, so American Red Cross values, such as the background. Our top priority, they say, is the safety of our volunteer blood donors and the patients in need of life-saving blood products. Our employees and volunteers are trained to be sensitive to the needs of all potential blood donors. The American Red Cross believes blood donation eligibility should not be determined by methods that are based upon sexual orientation. We are com committed to working with partners towards achieving this goal. We understand that there is a difference between biological sex and gender. No, they don't. <laughs> the Food and Drug Administration guidance revised recommendations for reducing the risk of human immunodeficiency virus transmission by blood and blood products states, quote, in the context of the donor history questionnaire, FDA recommends that male or female gender be taken to be self-identified and self-reported. In a linked document in which they're talking about what the rules are supposed to be, they're suggesting, and, and everyone who's collecting blood, I think it's in the US, has this is from the FDA, has to abide by these guidelines, uh, that blood don donors must defer for three months for the most recent sexual contact, a man who has had sex with another man during the past three months, and uh, a woman who must defer for three months from the most recent sexual contact, a female who has had sex during the past three months with a man who has had sex with another man in the past three months. So those are the guidelines, supposedly as they stand. And yet, back on the Red Cross's site, under men who have sex with men, they say, again, the FDA guidance, what I just read, defer for three months from the most recent sexual contact, a man who has had sex with another man during the past three months, all U.S. blood collection organizations must follow this federal requirement. But the Red Cross continues. The Red Cross recognizes the hurt this policy has caused to many in the LGBTQ plus community and believes blood donation eligibility should not be determined by methods that are based upon sexual orientation. We are committed to working with partners towards achieving this goal. And when you go into their frequently asked questions, 
I'm a trans woman, and I have not been eligible to donate because my assigned sex at birth was male, and I had sex with a man. Can I donate blood? Individuals who identify as female and have sex with a man may be eligible to donate blood, if all other blood donation eligibility criteria are applicable. If an individual is previously deferred from donating blood due to, men, due to being a man who has sex with men, that person will need to call the donor and client support center, etc., etc., etc. All you have to do, if you are a man who has sex with men and has been actively having sex with men, if you want to donate blood and thus potentially corrupt the blood supply, is walk in, and as long as you have not tried this before, and admitted that you're actually a man and said, nope, I'm a woman. And they will let you donate blood. So it's the, it's the ultimate proof that this entire societal disorder, whatever it is, amounts to the prioritization of the perceptual world over reality. And not, yes, so that's the postmodern part, right? And then it's a prioritization of the perceptual world of mentally ill people, right? Like, it's one thing to have gender dysphoria and feel like I really, in order to feel my most true self, I need to present as the sex that I am not. It is quite another thing to say, nope, I'm a dude, not. I never felt like it either, but like it's 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 a different it's it's that is a mental disorder. Furthermore, if you go in to the Red Cross knowing what everyone knows about the ways that things like monkeypox are transmitted, and you say, "Yep, I'm a woman. Yep, I've had sex with men, and yes, I was assigned male at birth, but I'm actually a woman today," and you donate blood knowing that, you're a psychopath. Well, I, I, I won't say that. I, I, I don't know. People are confused in a lot of different ways. People take advantage of these confusions in other ways. But I will say um, the problem is that this actually, in the same era that we have been told what we absolutely must do, for example, take an experimental gene therapy in order to protect vulnerable people, even if we ourselves do not believe ourselves to be vulnerable to COVID based on well-understood patterns of transmission. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't protect vulnerable people. Right, it doesn't. But mm -hmm. the point is, you know, at best, they thought it did. And if they did think yes. it did, and that's what was supposed to have morally required us, because protecting other people was the motivating factor. Mm -hmm. Why is protecting other people not the motivating factor here? And the answer is, look, if you are a biological male and you have had sex with other men, you can't donate blood, right? <laughs> not for a period of three months, yeah. right? That's simple. Mm -hmm. Nobody's asking you to out yourself. The point is, here's the guideline. Mm -hmm. Don't don donate blood if you don't qualify. Here's how you'll know. And the point is, in order but to- it's caused hurt. In order to humor this alternative perspective, and I'm not arguing that there is not a uh, a gentleman's agreement level of decency if somebody is trans has transitioned and they wish to be, you know, called female, fine. But the point is that this does not change things when you get to the doctor's office. It does not change things when you go to donate blood. There's a physical reality, and that's not about courtesy. Right. That's about that's about other things. In this case, it's about the transmission of a communicable disease. Yep.
It sure is. And uh, here, this felt a little bit related. Uh, don't put it up yet, Zach. Uh, people will probably remember Dylan Mulvaney, the, um, the very talented young man who less than a year ago decided uh, that transitioning publicly on TikTok uh, was actually going to be um, the way to acquire the fame uh, that he had clearly so long desired and, um, and now has you know, days of girlhood. And um, it, it's, it's quite something. It's quite something. And has recently undergone facial feminization surgery and has not yet revealed the new feminized face to the world. Um, but here is the top of a TikTok post for the new year. Uh, you may show it, in which Dylan Mulvaney says, a friendly reminder as we start the new year, not all trans people desire affirming surgeries or hormones. They are still trans. But when we do, it's a necessity and a win. Please show up for all trans people the way you have showed up for me. Happy New Year and love ya. You can't have it all the ways. It is an opt-in, get out of jail free as many times as you want. It's even better than Monopoly's get out of jail free card because you don't have to turn it in once you use it. All you have to do is say, nope, not the sex I actually am, and all the doors open, including the ability to pollute the blood supply, apparently. Why would we open that door for people? Why would we do that? Yeah. And just the maddening inconsistency uh, of it. Yeah. I mean, really, I, I, I'm having a hard time getting over a society that, you know, wants to manipulate us with claims that we have obligations to keep other people safe, which, of course, we do have obligations to keep other people safe. But they often then, as soon as you say, well, yeah, I agree, there's a requirement to keep other people safe, then they smuggle in all this stuff that puts you in tremendous danger for no obvious reason. Well, they also redefine safe, right? Of course. Uh, and violence. And everything. And, and everything. But, you know, safe, safe means feeling safe. Yeah. Right? And that, you know, that's... That's been being done for a long time, actually. Um, are you safe and do you feel safe are two reasonable questions. Do you feel safe and is that the indicator of whether or not you are safe? That is a, a there's a logical problem in that. And some people probably are very, very good having been in lots of different kinds of situations, encountered lots of different kinds of ways that they might actually not be safe, that having those two things, feeling safe and actually being safe, be as tightly coupled as possible, and we should all try for that. But some people seem actually interested in decoupling those things as much as possible and of crying about not being safe, you know, shouting from the rooftops about how at risk they are and how if you don't do what they want, they're going to hurl themselves off the roofs. And... When in fact there was no threat, why are we letting them rule? Why are we letting them make the decisions? Yeah, and uh, frankly, it's pretty obvious that this society is not really concerned about safety in any deep way, right? The food right. supply can tell you that. The mm -hmm. quality of the air, you mm -hmm. know, microplastics, all of these things are places where tremendously unsafe stuff has uh, been uh, produced in such a way that it impacts the development yeah. of children and the chemicals in the in the water supply that we're drinking, right? You know, both from pharmaceuticals and from uh, insecticides and so pesticides. I guess what I would say 
is that every time that same system, which is obviously indifferent to the harm it does to people, right? It's going to shove Mike Mew out of his profession uh, rather than address the question of, uh, you know, must we continue to harm children by feeding them stuff that's too soft when they're young, right? It doesn't care about the well-being of kids. Um, So then every time it uses safety Mm. as its excuse for taking some new kind of power, I officially don't believe it. Right. Right. If it was really interested in safety, it would be behaving differently. And even if it wasn't very good at protecting us, it would at right. least be consistent in desiring that we do things that are safer. But hell no. I mean, it is, um, you know, it likes to inflict stuff on us and it basically laughs when we, you know, take the bait. Yep. Um, and then it suddenly shouts safety and everybody's supposed to adjust everything about, you know, either you're supposed to throw out the precautionary principle mm-hmm. in the interest of safety. Right? Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> yes. It, 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 well, we're talking safety, not precaution. Precaution is right. a totally oh, different precaution. thing. Precaution, that's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're putting everyone in danger with all that precaution. Let us do your, think- Let us do your thinking for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nothing safer than that. Mm. Yeah. Indeed. Okay, well, um, remember the American Natural History Museum? Oh, I do. AMNH. Yes. Uh, AM. American Museum of Natural History. I'm sorry, I messed that up. It's the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, and they're important and big, and it's a lovely museum in New York, but they've also got um, AMNAT, uh, right? The the journal, one one of the top journals in, in organismal biology. And of course, they have what I, they may not even own anymore. It certainly went off the rails a long time ago, but the, um, the lay magazine, Natural History, I think that was also AMNH yep. publication for a while. Um, well, they have, apparently it's 150 years, uh, you can show my screen here now, uh, Teen Sci Cafe. That's SCI for those who are not watching. So it's Teen Science Cafe. They've got sort of these events uh, that they are running. And it's brought to my attention uh, that an upcoming event is Species Jumping Viruses. This is a week from now. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you don't you don't know, you did not know what was coming, but no. you're about to learn. Okay. Teen Sci Cafe at the American Museum of Natural History uh is offering a little 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 walkthrough uh on species jumping viruses next Saturday. What do Zika, West Nile, Ebola, HIV, and SARS CoV two all have in common? They are all zoonotic viruses. Viruses that affect other species and have evolved to infect humans, who can in turn pass viruses to other species. Are they now? Join Mark Valatuto, VMD, Senior Field Veterination for, wait for it, the EcoHealth Alliance. No. To learn about how zoonotic viruses jump from one species to another and how scientists are using this information to prepare for and prevent future pandemics. I, I, I can see the lesson now, okay? Uh, typically, a virus will go from its host species and it will... Uh, move to an intermediate species like a a ferret badger or a laboratory of virology and then it will Mm -hmm. jump into humans from there Mm -hmm. and uh, you know. Well but usually there's like an intermediate vector I would say between ferret badger and humans that involves a popsicle. The frozen ferret badger steaks. I do remember that trial balloon well. That was yes, a, that, that was, was a, a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that moment. Yeah. So, um, EcoHealth Alliance for for those who have have forgotten uh, is God. Well, I mean, they, they've we don't had know their what hand, it is. They've had their hand in everything, but um, they were the sort of the 
they were the pass-through organization, right? They were they were the pass-through organization where NIH was was giving them the grants and they were shunting the, the money to the Wuhan lab that was doing the gain-of-function research that is almost certainly where SARS-CoV-2 came from, meaning like not zoonotic, no, not unless you're taking a really big uh, definition of zoonotic there, and clearly that that's not what is meant to be implied here. Um, but also then the the president or the founder or whatever was put on lead on the trip to China to discover whether or not SARS-CoV-2 could possibly have come uh, from the lab or more, much more likely from the frozen ferret badger steaks uh, that, um, you know, it's basically all of those very, very bad habits of the very, very bad Chinese people. But it was us who were talking about lab leak who were the racist ones. Right. The ones who thought that this was uh, American work from North Carolina that had been offshored to China because of the... Via the past two organization that's EcoHealth Alliance. Right. Yeah. Also white guys, uh, you know, for example, Peter mm-hmm. Daszak, right. um, the, uh, the head of that organization. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable that they would try to pawn this off on kids. Yeah. Right. 14 year olds and up. They, they do recommend for, for teen sci cafe, uh, that you be 14 or older. So, um, so have you heard um, Jeffrey Sachs talk about this? Jeffrey Sachs has switched sides in the hmm. uh, the origins debate, and no. he's been uh, on a tear because actually he got hmm. taken advantage of as the head of the the panel looking into the question of origins, who put Peter Daszak on it. Hmm. And uh, anyway, he's fascinating to listen to. Yeah, I haven't. Um, because basically, what he discovered was that his entire panel had conflicts of interest and were lying. Right. And, you know, this is Jeffrey Sachs. Um, So anyway, it's... My God. Yeah. Um, So the American Museum of Natural History is doing this to us. You can put my screen back up. Uh, What do Zika, West Nile, Ebola, HIV, and SARS-CoV-2 all have in common? Well, I hope they don't all have the fact that they're not zoonotic in common. I didn't even think of that interpretation. (laughs) Um, But... Uh, you click through, and it's just easier for me to do this with screenshots. Uh, past events. Teen Sci Cafe, your friendly neighborhood coyote. Okay. Teen Sci Cafe, health, equity, racial inequality, and COVID-19. Wait, what? Okay. So let's click through and see what Teen Sci Cafe is. This is what the kids call a risky click. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Health, equity, racial inequality, and COVID-19. What do we have to learn from AMNH? This was an event that already happened in November. The COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately affected communities of color across the U.S., but why? How has a legacy of systemic racial inequality in the United States contributed to higher rates of infection and death and lower rates of vaccination in communities of color? Join First Deputy Commissioner and Chief Equity Officer of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, Torian Easterling, MD, to find out how the history of medical treatment and mistreatment in the BIPOC community set the stage for inequities during the pandemic and what we can do to reach equity in the future. Couple things. Oh yeah, Let's couple hear them. couple couple things. People of color, BIPOC people of color, whatever, right? Have darker skin. Mm, I was going to mention this. It's synonymous. That's that's a that's a tautology, right? Darker skin is an adaptation to having had ancestors who are more recently um, hearkening from closer to the equator, and it is a uh, is preventative against skin cancer in places where there is so much sun that they need to make 
vitamin D at the most optimal rate, the most efficient rate is not there because you're already getting so much. And so what darker skin does while also being a preventative against skin cancer is it reduces the skin's ability to synthesize vitamin D, which means especially as you being a dark skinned person move farther and farther from the equator and put on more and more clothes because you're farther and farther from the equator, you are much more likely to be vitamin D deficient even than uh, you know, white skinned folk who are living farther from the equator and also spending too much time inside and too much time covered up. White skin is more likely to burn, more likely to result in, in sunburn and therefore skin cancers, but much more efficient at synthesizing vitamin D. We know, and this has nothing to do with racism, that dark skin cannot, cannot synthesize vitamin D as effectively, and therefore dark skinned people who live farther from the equator are more likely to be vitamin D deficient, and we also know that vitamin D deficiency is a factor in bad COVID outcomes. Uh, yeah. both, both increases the likelihood of contracting COVID and the badness of the interaction with the disease. Exactly. Um, it's also true uh, that the history of racism in the United States, which is true and real, have, has, has uh, created some you know, really terrible events in African-American history, like, um, like Tuskegee. Right. And so African-Americans are appropriately skeptical when the government comes to them and says, trust us, it's safe, do it, do what we say. In this case, the fact that black Americans, African-Americans are less vaccinated than their white and Asian counterparts probably was the right move. But American Museum of Natural History is looking to redress that inequity. Yes. Of course they are. Um, while uh, hiding, I'm, well, we don't know for sure that they didn't talk about vitamin D, but given the way they set that thing up, basically right. the idea is the cause of this is racism right? rather than the cause of this is a physiological distinction that has a perfectly well understood explanation that has nothing to do with anybody engaging in racism. It has to do with the angle of the sun coming through the atmosphere and the relative risk of uh, cancer versus vitamin D deficiency. And anyway, trade-offs are racist. <laughs> That's a um, weird perspective. I mean, I guess the, the third point, you know, and again, we didn't, I didn't even know about this thing until after it happened. And we obviously weren't there. We don't know what was said. So I, I read the blurb that was all that was available publicly, but it's also true that it would, the blurb would seem to be implying that part of the problem was that some demographics didn't have access to the vaccines. Right. Everyone had access. Everybody had access. We had, it was beyond access. It was forced down our throats at every opportunity, all the time, you know, advertised everywhere, come here, go there, anywhere you want. It's available. It's free. It's easy. You must, you know, it was, there was, it was beyond accessible. Yeah. So the idea that it was racial inequity that kept black people from getting vaccinated yeah. No. No, it's a obviously a preposterous explanation, right? You had to be somewhat clever not to get vaccinated while you weren't paying attention. Yeah. Okay. We got the Red Cross losing the plot. We got AMNH, which I stupidly called AMANHM first, but I got it. I'm you back. did that, and then somehow you dragged me in and I signed I know, on I know. to that I'm sorry. misspelling of the acronym. 
again, I got taken to task. It's not an acronym, it's just an abbreviation. Acronyms are pronounceable. Mm. Yeah, I'm so, <laughs> right. Mm. Okay, so the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology. Wow, that feels strangely familiar. Yeah. Oh, should we should we don our masks for this section or not? Uh, I don't. Oh, did you lose yours? I, I have my. Okay. So, yeah. So the uh, here we go. That is uh, that's yeah. right side okay. up. No, I think so. Yeah. That is. So <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Uh, yeah, this is not a very useful way to prevent Anything. yourself from getting COVID, but it is a useful way of signaling something you picked you picked these up at the conference at the society for integrative comparative biology conference is that right i did i did mm-hmm. yeah you um, did. well so <clears throat> yep. i mean I, but you I, also picked this up which is awesome conference program yes they gave that to me yeah and i have i have begun reading it and i have some things to share from it it's actually super awesome in a lot of ways yes and then not so awesome in some ways so let me just say oh uh, wait the the pride masks the, the the pride masks have, a, have attracted the cat who has just changed things on my computer by walking He is nothing it. if not proud. <laughs> um, so let me just say, I was in Austin, of course, for, for the Joe Rogan experience. And my hotel turned out to be the epicenter of this conference, which I did not know was going to be there. And it just sort of emerged around me. And I was, yeah. you know, riding the elevators with these people. Um, so this was the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology, which, you know, that's not a conference I ever attended. It's always, it's always at this moment, like it's always during the winter break for, for colleges. And one of, one of our friends in grad school used to always go to it. Um, but it's not one yeah. I attended, but it is certainly material. Much of the the topic, the subject area, is stuff that's squarely in uh, the area we trained in. Yeah, in fact, I'm um, going to share a few a few of those. Yeah. So anyway, it was interesting for me. I, I I will say there was a part of it that was absolutely surreal because this mm. is a world we used to be embedded in, and now it feels kind of remote. And I was just sort of watching it anthropologically, as you would certainly have done if you had been there. And, you know, I saw like two kinds of people and it was really like, in some ways, really clear that everybody was in one category or the other. There were bedraggled, joyless faculty members, right, who were clearly like laboring under the weight of trying to do this in 2023 and bright eyed, bushy tailed graduate students who have I gotten the memo that they're going into a field that is dying? I mean, part of this is and it's just... It's not a field, a, 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 a century, I don't even know, like something that is... They it, are training for something that no longer exists. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, A, there's a part of this that's just, it's got to just be what it is to be older, right? I was looking at these graduate students and thinking, we were never that young, Right. <laughs> That, that's a level of young that just, I, I'm sure we were older than that when we were in graduate school, which can't possibly have been right. But anyway, um, and you know, there was a lot of like excitement among these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed graduate students who were clearly, you know, ready to, you know, confront yeah. science. And it's, and, it's a big conference. And for some of them, it would have been their first a big conference, lots of opportunities to meet you know, your future mentor, you know, the guy whose paper you just read and you really want to ask him a question. It's, yeah. it's potentially very exciting. It was. Yeah. It was, which also allowed me, uh, every time I got on the elevator, I was with, with folks from this conference, and yeah. I was um, 
very interested to hear their elevator pitch for what they do. Which so you would ask them as you know, they didn't recognize you, they didn't know you were a biologist, right? And you would say, "Hey, what's it about?" I'd say, "Oh, are you at the conference? What do you study?" Oh. And I would get the little elevator pitch for what okay. they study, and sometimes it was fascinating, and sometimes uh, they struggled to string three consecutive thoughts together convey what it was together and you know i would ask a good question they would look at me like what planet did you come from and um anyway that sort of thing but it was it was sort of fun from that that perspective um but i will say at some point i became really curious about what was going on in there and i decided to kind of crash it and i uh i went into the conference area Mm -hmm. and discovered that there was a mask mandate Mm -hmm. right which surprised Hence, me. In surprise yeah, I mean, these were not the official masks. I will say there were official. But they were masks being handed were, out. Uh, yes, these were. I'm free. thinking from what I've looked into of the conference that I know what group of people was handing out the pride masks. Yeah, and I mean, you know, um, on the one hand, pride mask, sure. On the other hand, that mask isn't useful for. This is a biology conference where they're supposed to be integrating. And that mask is not evidence of their being on board with the latest understanding of this pathogen and how it transmits. So this is basically, you know, it's a choice to signal instead of prevent disease, which, you know, if that had happened at the um, modern art conference, right, it would have a little different of an implication. But in this case, it was a little bit strange, both the mask mandate itself. Yep. Right. And the uh, in, in any case, my overarching sense was that you've got this conference in which, well, as you're, I'm sure, going to point out, there were some oddities in the material presented at the conference. Mm-hmm. And there was a context for every event of the conference, which was wearing masks, which are not known to be a especially useful uh, mechanism to prevent the transmission of COVID. Mm-hmm. And w- what does it mean to be at a conference of biologists in which some fraction of the material is actually smoke and mirrors and a biologist should easily see that? Right. Absolutely. So here's just, um, <clears throat> I, I stopped going to conferences before I should have because I found them infuriating uh, and meat markety. Um, but I always loved loved this part of it and thinking about, just as I always loved a course catalog, like thinking about, okay, which of these sessions am I going to go to? And so I went, I haven't looked through all of it yet. It's, it's long. Uh, and online you can find the abstracts. If this had the abstracts, it would be, you know, 10 times as thick, more than that. Um, but just from the titles, I see a lot to be excited about at, at this conference, which is still going on right now. They're having like their end of, it's a ball. long conference. Yeah, the second through the seventh, third through the seventh. So it started when you're halfway through you, you being in Austin. Um, the, you know, they've got sessions on evolution of behavior, sexual selection, communication, locomotion, uh, an entire session called, I think, yeah, an entire session called Heads or Tails, Control Surfaces in Aquatic Locomotion. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just from just three pages, I've got um, these three talks rules for emergent synchrony during bioluminescent behavior of sea fireflies so you know how is it rules for emergent synchrony during bioluminescent behavior of sea fireflies i didn't i didn't 
never heard of a sea firefly before. Yeah. Um, but how do these presumably uh, marine insects um, end up syncing up what they are doing? Now, wait a second. So, fireflies. Sea fireflies. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But fireflies proper. All I've got is the title, incidentally. So we can talk about this, but gonna, I got I got nothing more gonna, than that. We're gonna speculate, and if <laughs> okay. the sea fireflies are offended, that's uh-huh. gonna be they can write a, a sternly worded letter. Okay. Um, but in actual fireflies, yeah, all I've got is the authors. That doesn't help. No. Yeah. In actual fireflies, you've got two kinds of synchrony. Mm-hmm. You could potentially have synchrony of emergence which is kind of implied by that title yes and yes, yes, yes. you could have synchrony of luminescing yeah. right so there are some fireflies on earth in which a tree will luminesce in sync we don't know which that is we don't know which it is no and i mean that, that in a way that actually makes for a really cool talk because you're know, like oh i want to know you know, or if you were actually deciding between you know this and one of the like 10 other concurrent sessions you would probably go online look at the abstract and see if if they were actually doing anything interesting before going and spending whatever it was. I didn't even look 10 or 12 minutes yep. at the talk. Um, another title that I thought I would have been interested to go to if I had if I had been at this conference, Alligators Use Elastic Energy Storage in Ankle Extensions During Steady State Walking. This Alligators, t- ankle extensions. Ankle extension walking. So this put me in mind of... Uh, Archosaur ankles, which you can just very quickly, Zach, put this on screen and then take it down because I'm not going to walk through it. But this is a slide uh, from my um, Archosaur evolution lecture back when I gave Archosaur evolution lectures, Archosaurs being um, birds, dinosaurs, and crocodilians. And Archosaur ankles um, are variable. And like, think about a bird and think about how they walk along uh, on, on their legs and they don't uh, they just kind of like pad along. I can't really do it because I got cats and a computer and everything. Whereas if you've ever watched video of or been lucky enough to be around a crocodilian, crocodile, alligator, gharial, caiman, um, usually they kind of sit in this in this position, right? And they and they even will move a little bit in the slow position. But if you excite them or anger them or scare them, they will move their bo- their legs under them and they do a high walk that can be very very fast. And that is because they've got this thing called a querotarsal ankle in which they can basically have their, have their bones in this orientation or in this orientation and it's stable both ways. Uh, whereas uh, the other archosaurs, the birds and the dinosaurs, uh, were stuck in a sort of like flat-footed position. So if they were to be attacked mm-hmm. by hymenopterans of some kind, they could scurry away rapidly... And if I studied that okay. and I was going to deliver a talk, it could be Archosaurus ants and ankles. Okay. All right. I'm not sure ants it's worth it. It wasn't ankles. worth it? Ants and ankles. See, ants and ankles as yeah. opposed to aunts and uncles. Never mind. I just thought I'd try it. You know yes. that when you do that sort of thing, it makes the, the person who you're doing it to think, he can't have been listening to what I was saying. No, was I was. No, 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 no. On the, on the contrary. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening. You had to be listening to some of it. Yes. Yeah. And I, I noted yeah. your beautiful diagram and was impressed that of you know you happened to have a slide on this exact topic. Well, so elastic energy storage and ankle extensions. I assume that that talk on alligators at this conference, yeah, still going on right now, uh, was actually about soft soft tissue. Um, 
elastic energy storage, right? That sounds like soft tissue rather than rather than bone, but it's 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 related. Well, elastic energy storage is going to be like the the bounce that comes from not uh, contracting a muscle, but right. the yeah. But that's yeah. soft. That's that's the soft tissue stuff. Yeah, so it's going it to be ligaments, tendons, muscles, the ligaments and tendons. Um, and then just one more one more title: um, War and Sex in the Tropics: Performance Trade-offs in the World's Largest Semiparous Mammals. So I'm I'm sharing this, and I'll read that again for you to for you to parse it. I'm sharing these in part because conf- these academic conferences may seem from the outside like they couldn't have any value at all. They're really boring and everything. But you know, people are having fun with the titles. They're having fun with the abstracts. They're having fun with the science. Like if the science isn't enjoyable to do, do some other kind of science or don't do science at all, right? So war and sex in the tropics, performance trade-offs in the world's largest semiparous mammals. Um, I don't know that <clears throat> I actually did in this case go to the abstract because I was like, what do they think the world's largest semiparous mammals are? Semiparous just refers to an organism that has sex, has one mating event. Maybe it may be a short period of events, but then dies. So, for instance, Pacific salmon famously do you know spend all this non-reproductive time out at sea, and then they return. That's the anatomy part um, back to their natal stream, and they have a series of mating events, and then they die. They do not go back out to sea and come back and have another. So this is um, going to have to be a rodent. It's uh, no, it's a marsupial. It's a, it's the qual, Q U O L L, the qual. But um, even their abstract. So what we're, what we're talking about now is what is uh, the world's largest semiparous mammal? That is a mammal um, that by by its very being has sex once or has a brief mating season and then dies and doesn't have another mating season afterwards. Um, but I take slight issue because as it turns out, quals are, the males are almost always semiparous, but the females actually have a couple of oh, mating seasons. Oh, now that you mention so it, So it's one that. sex semiparity and yeah. the other sex not so much, but anyway, it made for a good title. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so okay. it's probably both the world's largest and smallest arguably semiparous mammal. Well, I yes, unless there's another right there within that clay to marsupials, I think, because there aren't any placental mammals, which is like all the mammals you can think of that aren't, um, uh, uh, what's the one in the new world? What? <laughs> the marsupial? I can't oh, think of. Oh, uh, uh, um Yeah, possums. Possums, yeah. Um, basically, if it's not a possum or it lives in Australia, it's probably a placental, unless it's an echidna or a platypus. Okay. We're now driving people driving off people by away. the yeah. minute. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll skip that. I'm going to skip that. Um, integrative biology incubator. How do plants, animals, fungi, and algae solve the same problems differently? It's a brainstorming workshop that they had. Hmm. And what they say in the description of the brainstorming workshop, what blind spots become apparent in our core biological concepts when we compare and contrast solutions from different biological kingdoms? Awesome. Yes. That's the sort of thing that should be happening at scientific conferences. Pull people together from all over the world, mostly the U.S., but all over the world, and put those who want to be there in a room together and say, okay, you have expertise in frogs and you have expertise in tomatoes and you have expertise in morels. And, you know, how do they all solve the problem of getting, of, of growing, of getting nutrients, of, you know, whatever it is, of cell recovery, you know, whatever it is, when are these solutions shared and between which clades and when are they different and how, what can we learn? Like, 
that's awesome. That's yep. part of what drove me to be interested in biology. If right? well done, awesome. If well done, awesome. However, however, there were nine symposia at the conference. Symposia basically being conferences within a conference. So a symposia has sort of a higher level of prestige than just the... Um, just the sessions, it's been organized carefully, uh, and uh, you probably had to sort of submit something. It was a higher standard to be admitted in, both to be a symposium and then to be able to talk at the symposium. And um, several of those, several of the symposia look really fascinating. One of them was biology at birth, the role of infancy in providing the foundation for lifetime success. And uh, it, a number of really interesting talks. But there is also the Sexual Diversity and Variation Symposium, which I suspect it was those people who were handing out these guys, these pride masks. <clears throat> it doesn't did include some talks that appear to be actual science, um, but it's mostly a smorgasbord of self-indulgent confusion and was co-organized by a graduate student who will no doubt go far, given that he's playing by all the current ideological rules and fashions. Um, but his Twitter profile, and I'm not going to share details or specifics of exactly who he is or what his institution is, so I'm, I've taken out the identifying features here. Um, Twitter profile reads, without the identifying features, queer trans evolutionary biologist, aspiring plant, hashtag psycom, hashtag psycom, drag king, relentlessly earnest, they, them. This is one of the co-organizers of one of the symposia at one of the biggest biology conferences going on at all, and it happens to be going on right now. Some of the talk titles organized by this they, them, queer, trans, evolutionary biologist, aspiring plant person um, are Linnaean Libertines, The Queer Possibilities of Plants, and, and this one appears to be from the lab of someone who should know better, the talk is Fluidity and Inconstancy, Australian Bush Tomatoes, Solanum, as an exemplar of non-normative sex expression in plants and across life. Non-normative sex expression. In plants. Normative. Normative. <laughs> in tomatoes. <You'd... laughs> well, if you were going to have something non-normative in plants. I mean, Australian plants. Bush Tomatoes. Right, right, do, right. You sure. know, pretty non-normative. Yeah. <laughs> As far as plants go in the direction of non-normativity, I would imagine that tomatoes, and especially the Australian bush variety, would be at the top of the list. It but, was the low-hanging fruit. Ooh, that was pretty well done, actually. Yeah, yeah the low-hanging fruit. Um, but all right, so this, this, this does... Seriously, people. I mean, come on. This does get to the, the <sighs> central question, though. Yeah. Is my, my claim is, if you have... I don't know how many people were at this conference. It was hundreds. It's a big conference. It's a big yeah. conference. You have all of these people actively involved in academic biology, studiously not making eye contact with the fact that there are symposia, symposia that make no sense going on at the conference where they are, mm -hmm. abiding by mandates that make little sense at the conference where they are. Yes. The field doesn't exist because the basic the idea is the whole point of science is that you're supposed to follow the evidence using the, the, the hypothetical deductive method of science to figure out what is actually true, and that is the North Star, mm -hmm. to the extent that a field is going to kowtow to fiction 
right, then it's not a scientific field. And it doesn't matter that it may occasionally do something scientific because the point is it has signed up for a value system in which something else apparently has priority. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know anything about this person who organized the symposium, but yeah. you can certainly imagine knowing what we saw in academia, as you say, person's likely to go far. Why? Because nobody's going to be in a position to say, actually, that work wasn't good enough. That work didn't mean anything. What's more, it wasn't scientific, right? Because if you did say that to somebody who claimed to be trans, then the point is, oh, well, you're discriminating against me because I'm trans. Check and mate. Check and mate. And also, I mean, he's doing it very effectively now because just like Publisher Parish used to be the rule of law in academia and it's sort of expanded to well also you're expected to do outreach and you're supposed to have all of these different kinds of experiences wherein you engage with with the broader community and so it's not just publishing peer-reviewed academic papers you know on which we've talked a lot about the problems there um, but that you know that had been sort of the gold standard <clears throat> this person has now organized a symposium at one of the largest biological conferences mm. and previously gave a talk at another, gave an invited talk at another conference. And those two things on a CV, applying from applying out of grad school for a postdoc, that's huge. Most people don't have that. Most, most grad students don't have that. So, you know, and yet the topics of both the talk, which I'm not going to spend time on here, and this symposium at this conference are not scientific. There's, there's, there's no science there, as far as I can tell. Um, and, you, you know, no, I wasn't there, and they don't have the talks up yet. They are going to post the talks, and I was going to watch them, but they're not up yet. But it, it, it gives the appearance. It's like, it's, 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 it's Potemkin science. It's Potemkin academia. It's, you know, this, this facade, and all you have to, you know, the line on the CV is what potential employers, you know, academic employers will be looking for. Like, oh, well, look at you. Aren't you a go-getter? Haven't you done a lot of good work? Like, well, I did do work. Doesn't well, look like it was good. No, but it's even, it's even worse than that. I'm sure of it. Um, well, here's yep. how it's worse. Imagine that your core uh, desire in life was transactivism. You know, you know what's a real pain in the ass if you're a trans activist? Evolutionary biology, right? So yeah. if, you, if your core thing was to shut those evolutionary biologists up, right, people who understand that reef fish aren't the invalidation of binary sex, right, <laughs> um, you might go get yourself one of them fancy PhDs in evolutionary biology and you might wield it like a weapon. So I'm expecting that we're going to see this emerge as, you know, and you, know yes. and you can imagine, unless the world gets over the idea that as soon as you're trans, you're right, you know, right. as soon as we get over that idea, we can skip this. But until then, what this means is that as this person is able to set up symposia and give invited talks in order that people can, you know, I don't know, satisfy their kowtowing obligations or whatever, right? This person is going to gain power and that power is going to be used for what I call idea laundering, right? Yep. There, he's, he's going to launder wrong ideas into evolutionary biology, which is going to make it harder and harder to do high quality evolutionary biology because, you know, are you going to cite it? Are you going to ignore it? What do you do? Right. Um, and I will point out, I, I think it's Michel Foucault 
who essentially argued to Trojan horse fields to enter them and disrupt their ability to do what they do. Maybe it was Marcuse, but I think it was Foucault. But in any case, it's somebody's idea that the purpose of this stuff is actually its activism and disruption. And so, you know, wake up, evolutionary biologists. There's one headed your way. Yeah. Right? And, you know, uh, let's be... It's already inside the house. Right. The call is now coming from inside the house. And I will just say, you know, this is not to say that Trans people shouldn't be able to do evolutionary biology. But if your purpose is to disrupt evolutionary biology with nonsense stuff, right? I mean, the fact well, is, if you, if you land in evolutionary biology as a trans person, what are the chances that you also land on that as your topic, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, yeah. why are you not studying chelation and the scales of a, you know, fence lizards or something, right? Why are you studying that exact thing? And does that not suggest that maybe you've landed there because evolutionary biology is not your top priority, but something else is? Exactly. So I will, I've told this story before, but um, the the line in the, in the bio of the person who co-organized the symposium, queer slash trans evolutionary biologist. Whenever I see something modifying evolutionary biologists that isn't that isn't like a, a, a narrowing of what kind of evolutionary biologist you are. Yeah. Right? Um, I think to... Uh, mm, I know exactly what you're saying. Y- yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know the story I'm going to tell. Um, I think to when I was trying to uh, sell my first book, Antipode, and uh, it was about my research and life in Madagascar. And I had, uh, I, I had a good agent, and he was pitching it, and this was long before we ever lived um, in um, Portland or anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, but actually there was a small press in Portland that showed, that showed the first interest. Uh, and I ended up getting it published by a major uh, publishing house, but this small press showed interest, and they were offering you know, a nice amount of money for a grad student. We hardly made any money at all at that point. Um, and they were super interested because they said, um, it's a story of feminist science. And I said, nope, can't, can't, can't go there, won't go there, because that's not a thing. And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's, it feels, you know, okay, so and it, there's actually, there's no mention of feminism in the book, but I said, well, you know, as a woman who goes alone in these places, you know, you must be a feminist. And, and at that point, this would have been late 90s, early aughts. It's like, you know, I actually do. I, I did still think of myself as a feminist at that point, but um, that's separate from being a scientist. And you can't modify scientist with... Uh, feminist, because the, the feminism is an ideological position, and uh, and if that is informing, if that is modifying linguistically, scientist, then your science is suspect and your science is flawed, and you aren't holding the scientific process as the thing that is most important. Because if you're doing science and you ask a question that comes up with an answer that you you come up with an answer that you don't like. You're not expecting. You wish weren't true. It's still the answer. And if you are informing your science with some ideology, which is likely to have you push some answers and deep six others, then you're not really doing science. So same thing, queer, trans, evolutionary biologist. Like you can be. We've talked like no one can define queer, so let's just put queer. No, 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 no. Two things. One, it's not the story I thought you were going to tell, but 
the fact that queer shows up without a meaning in this case, right, right, is in and of itself an indication that something is up here, right? How is it not redundant with trans? Yeah. But right? I mean, like, you could, as you already said, like, you can be trans and you can be an evolutionary biologist, but putting them together oh, totally, validates the scientist part. Totally agree. But the fact of putting queer and trans together yeah. as a co-modifier, right, that sounds like it's uh, rather full of meaning. What exactly is that meaning? Yeah. Right? So I once, yeah. long ago, tweeted uh, something like, if the Q were removed from LGBTQ, who exactly would right. be excluded and got not a single useful answer? Right. Um, so saying, well, then what is this community, right? Yeah. I'm not saying there's no community, but I'm saying why is there an extra letter in there if not as some kind of... Um, mechanism to do something other than convey meaning yeah if there's no meaning but the story i thought you were going to tell was when we were at evergreen there was a hire that was advanced for a feminist economist yep. and you and i both raised this exact issue yep. saying an economist saying no <laughs> yeah an economist is supposed to describe how economics works and the idea that you've put an ideological modifier on it means that's not what you're doing right, right. you've effectively advertised a filter so it's the same yep. same meaning as no uh, and when I, when i when i argued against that position because i think both you and i were on sort of the general hiring committee to decide at that point so we both got supposedly had some voice there but didn't make a difference uh, i believe i told the story that i just told here then too because it it just it's it can't work that way and yep. everyone is buying the press of the people who are claiming to be the most the most damaged and and hurt by societal strictures and we just we just have to stop yeah we have to we have to stop yep i'm okay. an environmental mathematician I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. No. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. One last thing. Mm -hmm. We just lost half of our life. Yep. All right. No, we got mood lighting. It's for the for the one last thing. Let's just let's no. Let's play it as a feature. Okay. It's play it as a feature. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going. Yeah. That's not a feature. Okay. Um, so I went looking this week uh, for reasons that may become clear in natural selections on my Substack. Um, for some of my old music books. And in looking for some of my old music books, I found, I found this. Our Natural Science World, a project of the tri... Actually, Zach, I need you back here to show my screen. <laughs> Fairfax, can you do it? Hey, Zach. Like, I actually can't do this without the screen. Um, I'm not sure what to do. Zach? Here, talk about it. He'll come back. Okay. Um, the lighting is much less important than actually being able to show the screen here. Um, Zach, I need you to show my screen. <laughs> okay. So I found um, I found this, and it turns out to be a a work a piece of work that I did in fourth grade uh, when I was. Uh, this was right 
this was right around when uh, kids in L.A. in the public schools were being bused. And so I was being bused for half a year. And I was at Baldwin Hills. And uh, this is at the end of the year, science lab. And I do this uh, this bit on, uh, it's a 16-page document, in fact. Um, that does sound like you. <laughs> here's the table of contents. Wow, color-coded and oh everything. Oh, my God. So I got scientific instruments, three natural science kingdoms. What? Uh, which apparently are mineralogy, plants, and animals. Oh, oh it's like 20 questions. Oh, man. Um, and, I mean, there's some really good stuff in here, I, I got to say. Um, and I only I'm only going to show you five pages. I've only I've already showed you two, shown you two. Um, so you know we got mineralogy, what makes soil, plant propagation, invertebrates, uh, vertebrates, fish class, amphibian class, reptilia class, aves class, and class mammalia. So um, you know very typical uh, for for the era and for elementary school, even in a you know advanced fourth grade science class. Uh, we have, for instance, cricket observation. I mean, look at this. Uh-huh. It's you know, pretty, pretty well done here. You've got, you know, I did the little, the, the, the drawing of the various parts of the cricket. And then I even give the, like, the uh, temperature formula at the bottom for um, how to tell what temperature it is by how many chirps they've got going per minute. You know, I, I, got, uh-huh. I got some good stuff here. Um, but then we get to vertebrates. Um, <laughs> um I don't even know what the amoeba-looking thing is supposed to be. My best guess is the cross-section of a vertebra, uh, but it doesn't really work. But whatever, I'm not, not really totally sure what's going on there. And I've got the five groups of vertebrates. Again, you know, this is not actually how evolution worked, but uh, I got a really unhappy-looking frog, but it's the only one I did in color. And aves is represented by, it looks like a cat caught to it. Yes. It's just two feathers. Uh, reptilia. Represented by the snake, as you know, I was already into snakes, so I'm I'm doing snakes, and then the mammal, mammaly, as I as I describe it, there is, I think that's just fur. I think that's just <laughs> a fur. clump of fur. It's like the birds and the mammals both got just like their representative you could have things. Done a glass of milk. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, large size, long lives, mostly not many. Started four hundred twenty million years ago. I got like some 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 good stuff in here, but. Um, I was just flipping through this. I was all alone. You were in Austin. I'm like, I, I don't remember anything about this. I don't remember anything about even making this this book at all. You know, it was clearly, it was a big, big project. Uh, and then I get to the birds. <clears throat> Aves, backbones, feathers, endothermic, beaks or bills, good brain, eyesight, keen hearing. Um, Audubon. I don't know what that means. Audubon. Okay. Like he studied birds, sure. Yes. And then finally, and there's a lot more good stuff here, but I have I have the classifications of the birds. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we got four types of birds. Four types of birds. Water birds. Uh-huh. Predatory birds. Unusual birds. And pet birds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and I, I, ha- I have to say that despite... Despite such ridiculousness, I got an excellent work. Of course you did. Excellent of work. Of course you even did. I was, even as unusual were, birds and pet birds were two pet, of my four categories of birds. There are some unusual birds and there are some pet birds. There are. There are. There are. No, I feel uh, <laughs> strangely teleported back to, um, was that fourth grade? The fourth grade, yeah. yeah to my fourth, fourth grade. grade self and I feel uh, uh, unable to compete 
with that overachieving girl who <laughs> doesn't know when to quit with her four type of birds and yeah oh my god no yeah no it's it's i mean there's more i'm not i'm, I'm gonna stop yeah <laughs> i at the point that i got to pet birds is one of the categories of birds <laughs> yeah don't show that to arnold <laughs> <laughs> my graduate advisor uh, he would not approve no. um so anyway that's it i was trying i was i was trying to not lose the plot yeah back in fourth grade <laughs> trying to figure out the plot i mean i, I mentioned chondrichthys in there hey look at that oh uh, and so we were lit and thus there was light. And thus there was, again, light yes. for who knows how long. Um, that's all I got. All right. Well, I think we've arrived there. Okay. Um, there are no doubt questions. Uh, there will be, there I will think. Be there will questions, be questions. And we will endeavor to answer them. Indeed. And so you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, there will certainly be already some questions there, but you can continue to ask questions. And... Um, Again, we encourage you to join our Patreons where you can have access to our thriving Discord community. Uh, and Brett is having a conversation on his Patreon tomorrow. Evolutionary. Mm-hmm. Evolutionary conversation at 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, come find me at uh, Natural Selections on Substack. Read our book. And until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. And if you see the plot, please let us know where it's gone so we can alert some folks. 